0: receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, will you in these moments open your word to us? It's addressed to your church. And so, Lord, we need to hear from you today. And we would ask for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday, we continued to look at uh, our series on the Apostles' Creed, and uh, we were uh, looking at the phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And now, uh, so that was the third one in the creed where uh, there was a statement, I believe. And of course, it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With all of the statements, there is the, the implication, yes, this is what I believe. But with those three, it's specifically stated So now we're going to hit uh, some brief statements uh, that are nonetheless packed with meaning. Uh, The first of those phrases is the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now without a doubt, that first part of that phrase has uh, been asked to me perhaps more than anything else for clarification when it comes to the Apostles' Creed. It is maybe the most misunderstood phrase in the Creed. Why? Well, I, I think it's uh, pretty evident that uh, it's because it is uh, often confused where we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. People think we are saying, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, many of you grew up in or came to our church from Roman Catholicism. Others came from churches that that didn't have a creed, and then then you hear this and say, well, what what do we have to do? Why would we make a statement like that about the Catholic Church? Well, I want to clarify, before we go into the statement itself, it is not the same. The Holy Catholic Church was not intended to be related to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is uh, the church that in our day we usually just call Catholic. And by the way, if you're here today and it's your first time in a Protestant church, welcome, we're glad you're here. And this is a, a clarification uh, but I, I don't think there's anything that I'm about to say that uh, any Roman Catholic would have any disagreement with. Uh, th- the Roman Catholic Church is what we typically just call Catholic. The Pope is the head of the church. Rome is its head- headquarters. And as a church they have seven sacraments. Now, it is distinguished, the Roman Catholic Church is distinguished from uh, the Protestant Church and specifically from our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, in most ways, in terms of our doctrine. There are doctrines we we agree with, but there are a number of doctrines that uh, we have a disagreement on. And so uh, w- when we want to clarify that when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that it, it's not related to the beliefs that come from Rome. So what does it mean? Let's break down that statement. First of all, the church itself. I want to read to you from Matthew 16. And this is one of the places uh, where uh, we would find disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church in terms of interpretation of this particular passage In Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what was taking place here? Jesus and his disciples go to this region. He says, who are people? Well, what are they saying about me? Who are they saying that I, that I am? And they, they give the various theories of who Jesus is, the common ones in that day. And then he gets personal with them. Who do you say I am? And that's where Peter responds. He says, the Christ, the Son of God. And then, Jesus says, you're Peter, Petrus, the rock. You're Peter, upon this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the, the big question and the point of uh, contention is, what's the this? Is it, I'm going to build my church on Peter? Which the Roman church would say, yes, that's what it was. In fact, he was the first pope, they would say. Whereas, what we would say is No. It's not built on Peter. It's not built on any of the disciples. It's not not built on any person. But instead, it's built on the truth of what he had just stated, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's what he would build his church upon. And so... That's where we uh, get this term. Uh, The the Greek term for church, and we don't usually uh, say Greek words from the pulpit unless there's a reason for it, but it's ecclesia, And the reason I say that is because you might recognize ecclesiastical or uh, that kind of a term, ecclesiology, the study of the church. But that word's important. It's it's found 114 times in the New Testament. I didn't count them. Someone else did. Uh, But it's, it's there. It's all over the place. And it's a compound word. And it means out called or called out ones. That's what the church is. We are the ones called out. Called out from where? From what? Well, from many places, out of darkness into light, out of the world into the church. But we are unique in that way that we have been called out. Now, the word church is used at least four different ways in the New Testament. And you, you have to look at the context to figure out how it's used. Sometimes it means the worldwide church, the church as a whole. Sometimes it's believers in a certain region, like the, the church in Galatia. Uh, Galatia was a region that would be modern-day Turkey, but, but it wasn't just one city. It would be a number of cities, and, but spoken of as, as the church. Sometimes, a third way, is it's a local congregation, like like in Corinth, or uh, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So sometimes it is a, a local congregation in a particular city, and then the fourth way is it can refer to a group of believers that are gathered for worship. Any of those, it's appropriate to say that's the church. But in all cases, it's made up of those who are called out by Christ. Those who have been enabled to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life. That's the church with the focus upon none other than what Jesus said. That profession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what puts one within the realm of the church. Now we need to understand that in terms of the visible church, there is always a mixture. There are those that will say I'm a part of the church but they really aren't because they really don't believe down deep but they might associate outwardly with the church. As long as we're here on this earth, that will always be the case. So secondly, that, that's the, the word church. The nature of the church is it's holy. I read this to you earlier in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is, being called out of darkness to light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. In other words, once you didn't have anything to do with each other, some people deliberately, some just because they had nothing in common, now you're God's people. Why? Because you have the most important thing in common. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So when we talk about the church being holy, let's talk about what it does And doesn't mean, again, is the church holy? Yes and no. Here's what I mean by that. The church is absolutely holy. In the sense that we have been called out and set apart by Christ. We are holy in the sense that what Jesus did on the cross made us holy. Absolutely. And so we stand, if we are in Christ, we stand as righteous before him, which we'll talk about more in the next couple of weeks when we look at the forgiveness of sin. But we stand absolutely righteous before him. But that doesn't mean that the church and its members in this life are holy in the sense that they are without sin. As long as we are in this fallen world, we will grapple with sin. Even those that from God's perspective are holy. And so uh, we, we mustn't ever say, because I am a part of the church, Uh, we're perfect here in the church. We know better. You know better in your heart. And yet, when we are imperfect, when we sin, we are doing that which is out of character for what we are, what our stance is before God, and that is being holy. We will not be given perfect holiness until we are in glory. Long ago, Augustine said the church was was like a hospital. It's full of sick people desperately hoping to be cured. And that's what we are. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, we maybe give a better appearance than what's going on in our life. Understand that. We understand that full well. We are a hospital. And the reason we're here is because we know we need the hospital. But we are set apart. We are consecrated. And by the way, that's not unlike what we will do in a few minutes with, with this bread and with this fruit of the vine. This bread and uh, this, its juice in, in our case, the fruit of the vine, uh, was bought at a store. You can, you can go to, to Kroger or Publix and, and buy these. That's not what makes them special. But in a few minutes, we will pray and we will ask God to take these ordinary elements and set them apart for his special use. Now, it's not magical. It's not making them into something that they are not. It's still bread. It's still the fruit of the vine. But our great God is able to use these common, ordinary elements and use them to grow us. And that's what the church is like. He is able to to use common people in order to advance his kingdom. And that's what he loves to do. Not because we are great, but because he is great. And then we see that most controversial, perhaps, word in that phrase, Catholic, which refers to the extent of the church. So, in our church, we have an asterisk, just so people, if they walk in the door and they're not used to the Apostles' Creed, and they say, what What? Am I, what did I just say, Catholic? And then the, it shows that we, it means universal. And that is what the term Catholic means means when it's pertaining to the church over in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 which by the way this was part of our reading challenge this week if you're if you're keeping up with your reading this summer Ephesians 4 4 there is one body one spirit Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as we speak of the universal church, we are saying that we believe in this true church, that is relevant to every age, every people, everywhere. That's the idea of it being Catholic. The true Catholic church, church universal, all have the same head, and that is Christ Jesus himself. The true Catholic church church has common beliefs in the essentials. That's the beauty of, for instance, the Apostles Creed. You go to true churches all over this world and uh, they can affirm these things that we say in the Apostles Creed. Now, we often hear the plea, or at least I've often heard this during my ministry, that uh, we need to be more united among the denominations. It doesn't, doesn't look good, you know, we need to, we got all these denominations and that makes us look bad, like uh, we're not all one church. And uh, so they're saying we need to do more things together, and, and I'm not opposed to that, and uh I've I've done many things cooperative throughout my ministry with with other denominations and so on. That again we can we can agree with. I'm not opposed to that, but I do think it's more biblical for us to insist that because of a common faith, we are already united. It's not something we have to do outwardly. It's not how often we worship together or march together. It's how we view the truth that makes us all a part of the universal church or not. Here's, here's what I use in our membership class to describe how we look at our beliefs. Uh, here's what I say in our materials. We believe in majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. We believe that in the essentials, there must be unity, and in the non-essentials, there must be freedom. Now, that's not original with us. Uh, That is based on the statement that was made by a, a German Lutheran theologian way back in the 1600s, uh, during the the uh, bloody Thirty Years' War, and he was talking about how how do we look at one another as Christians? And this was his statement: in the essentials, unity; in the non-essentials, liberty; in all things, charity, love. And that's how we look at our essentials, our beliefs. It speaks of having the right focus and basis for our Catholicity, but also our communion. And that leads us to the next phrase in application, the communion of saints. Now, although it's not speaking of this, we sometimes call the Lord's Supper communion. That's right, that's that's fine to call it that. That's not what this is uh, speaking of, but it is related to it, because it's uh, what we say in the Apostles' Creed is talking about a union because of Christ, that we have this communion with other believers that we wouldn't have otherwise. And if you've ever traveled to other parts of the country and gone to churches if you've ever traveled, especially around the world. I've met met so many people in other other countries that are believers that we don't have the same language, we don't have the same customs, same background. We basically have nothing in common except Christ. Christ. And that gives us the most important thing in common. And that's what the communion of saints is speaking of. There are two things that bring families together. Uh, I have the privilege of being involved in, in both of these often. Weddings and funerals. Let let me describe a a family wedding for you. There is uh, at this wedding Cousin Billy Bob. Now, you don't really care for Cousin Billy Bob, you don't like him. He's always stirring up trouble, he's argumentative. He's sarcastic. You're already thinking of somebody in your family. <laughs> He's sarcastic. He's a real pain. And you see him at the wedding, and you think, "Why is he even here? Why is he here at the wedding?" And then there's uh, sweet Aunt Gracie. Aunt Gracie says uh, at the rehearsal dinner and, and so on, and every chance she gets. Let's just pretend like we all get along just, just for a couple of days. Let's not embarrass the family, okay? Sweet Aunt Gracie. And then there's Aunt Mabel, bless her heart. <laughs> she's old, she's gotten feeble. She was determined, though, to get here. We'll put her in the pew uh, before the wedding. And then at the end of the wedding, we'll come back and, and get her. Somebody will. And they'll be responsible to get her to the reception and to get her food and, and so on. And get her punch. But she's there. And then there's Uncle Calvin. He's just different from the whole rest of the family. Uncle Calvin's a little off. He doesn't fit in. But he's harmless. And everybody loves him. And then there's the bride. And when the doors open in the back... She's the only thing that this whole group agrees on. She looks beautiful to her groom. She is the glue that holds this unlikely motley crew together. Now if this family sounds at all familiar to you, don't take it personally. It's only because it is a composite of many, many families. And by the way, even the names, all of those names are from my family. (laughs) Yes, even Billy Bob. (laughs) But I think to one degree or another, This does describe families. But the one thing agreed on was that the bride looked beautiful. So that's a family. What is the ultimate family relationship? It's the church. The scripture uses a bride and groom to describe the church. In Ephesians 5, it talks about Christ and his bride. You never knew Jesus was married. He, was, he is to the church, and he's the groom. It gives instructions in Ephesians 5 for husbands and wives, how you are to treat one another. But then it says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So he teaches on this practical level, but he says there's a bigger picture here. How so? Well Jesus always treats us right with grace with love with forgiveness with patience with loyalty with devotion we are his bride the church is his bride and although he sees us up close and sees all of our flaws to Jesus, we are beautiful. He's the groom looking at his bride. Because of that, because Christ is in us, we, the church, must see ourselves that way. After all, what matters to the bride the most it's how her groom sees her and so this table this is a reminder that we are the bride and Jesus loves us with an unending love that that took him all the way to the cross And as we eat, we are in fellowship with the Holy Catholic Church, with those in the church that have gone long before us, with those that will follow us, with believers around this world from every tongue and tribe and nation We are united and we will take until we literally enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb with all of them. Let's pray together. Lord, how beautiful is the body of Christ? Not because we have beauty, but because you have set your love upon us. Now, Lord, will you help us to to love your body? church that you shed your blood for. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.